Hello and welcome to episode number 39 of Crosstown Crosstalk presented by the Barroom Network. My name is Vinny Parisi. Joey Parisi's not here, so I'm taking it solo again today. So a couple days ago, I read a story that the Washington Nationals offered Juan Soto, who is one of the very best players in Major League Baseball right now, a 13-year, $350 million contract. And he declined it. He said, no, no thanks. I could probably make more, be on a better team. Maybe Washington will prove to me that they're improving. There are so many different options that I could have. I'm not signing that right now. No shot. It's risky. Of course it's risky. There are plenty of guys around the league looking at a couple Chicago Cubs stars that probably wish that they signed the deals that were offered to them initially. Juan Soto, he decided to take that risk. So it's the lockout. I'm bored. I just want to watch baseball. I started thinking, hmm. Juan Soto could go on the trade block if him and the Nationals don't, you know, ever come to a deal here. Or they could just try to do what they do with him and let him walk. They did that with Bryce Harper. It worked out well for them. I don't know if they're going to be in that contention window anytime soon. So I thought they might trade him. It's possible. What would it take for the White Sox to acquire him? They probably don't have what it takes because their farm system's so depleted because most of their guys are in the major league lineup now. But I was just having a little fun with it, and this article exploded. People wanted me dead just because I enjoy talking about trade packages. I know mine all stink. All of our trade packages stink, but they're fun. It's fun to think about. gets the brain going a little bit. And so one of the only people who responded to it with class and, you know, I respected it and completely agree with everything that he said. Of course, I'm talking about Max Raymond of the Fansided Network. He is joining us today covering the Washington Nationals from Fansided. Max, how are you doing today? Doing well, man. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. So you wrote that article in response to the one I wrote about Juan Soto's trade packages, and I thought it was brilliant. And I didn't really include Luis Robert in either of my you know, trade package things just because I don't know if the White Sox would ever trade Luis Robert if they're trading for Juan Soto because I feel like that's just kind of like counterproductive. Not that, you know, Luis Robert is at Juan Soto's level yet, hopefully. But, you know, I just think it's like if you need want one, you need the other in order to mm-hmm. compete. So I was wondering to you, what made it where you wanted to like respond to that article so quickly? I mean, one, I just saw the attention you were getting from just it, it even pop up like i didn't see the it from the white Sox twitter account from the Southside showdown twitter account i saw it nat's twitter actually screenshotted one of your trades and they were talking about it i was like oh okay i want to see what all the fuss is about and i saw it i was like well this is a great article topic because um our friend that reds runs the red site he's been doing that people have been writing um trade articles also uh, off season because you know we're bored there's nothing to write about because baseball's dead um so he's been doing that and just grading the offers i was like all right that's a great idea i'm gonna do the same thing and then i jumped in and after looking at your pieces i was like there's good ideas in some of the offers but if the nats are going to ever trade the second best hitter in baseball they have to acquire a superstar talent to build around hence where i landed on robert absolutely and you know you make great points and nothing you said, I disagree with. It probably would take Luis Robert in order for the Nets to want to get that deal done, especially if he's locked in a little bit longer in terms of years. Mm-hmm. But like I said, 
maybe the White Sox would just absolutely be out on a trade like that if they had to give him up because they'd probably go for somebody lesser than Soto, but it makes more sense to have that guy and Robert. So, you know, I think it's definitely a fun debate to go around. I know a lot of sites are taking advantage of the Juan Soto news, but I got to ask you, as a Washington Nationals fan and writer and all that kind of stuff, what was your initial reaction to Juan Soto declining the deal in general? Wasn't surprised. I, if I was Soto, I would have declined it um, because you look at three hundred fifty million, and at first you're like, "That's a lot of money." That would be the third highest um, contract in baseball. But then you look at the AAV, and it's twenty six point nine million right up to twenty seven. Next year, if he signed that right next year, he would only be the twentieth highest paid player per AAV, and he would be the youngest player on that entire list. And Soto's with Boris. Scott Boris likes to push his clients to as much money as possible. That's fine. We get it. It's good for the sport. It's good for his players. And, and Nats fans have even said it. Like We all expect a Soto deal to start with the number four um, as a bare minimum. And you think about it. So he has three years of uh, left on his contract before he hits free agency. And from the Nats perspective, they're not going to offer four, four fifty, five hundred right away. They want to set the table because they learned their lesson with Harper. Harper wanted to stay. They undersold him a lot. He said, I want to stay. I don't want the furls. All the furls. Same with Rendell. The one thing to talk about the Soto contract is zero of the furls were offered, which has been their ML. Max Scherzer, Strasburg's both contracts, Patrick Corbin, all have numerous deferrals, but this one didn't. So even though he said no, it's a great starting point because the Nats are already learning their lesson from past contracts and are showing that they're more determined to keeping the star than in the past. And again, three years left, they have a lot of time to work things out. I expect Soto to stay in D.C. because I don't think the Nats rebuild is going to take as long as people are thinking because Soto is on the roster already. Because when the White Sox underwent their big rebuild, right, they didn't have a superstar to build around yet. All their guys were in the minors. Same, same with some of the other teams, like the Astros. Like They didn't have any of their guys. Like that Altuve, but he wasn't Jose Altuve yet. So with the Nats, they already have an established star, and they were able to get a bunch of good pieces from the Dodgers. They have a fifth pick coming up, and that's why I think the rebuild will go a lot faster than what people are expecting. So if you're betting on the situation, it seems like you think Juan Soto will stick around and be a part of the Nationals for the better part of his prime? Yes, sir. I do. That, that's I mean, good to know. I appreciate hearing that, to be honest. I, I know all, all of us fans of other teams across the nation would love to have someone like Juan Soto on our favorite team. I mean, of course, you, you said you think he's the second best player in or second best hitter in baseball. I, I think it's very hard to argue against it. Um, I, of course, I'd like to have that guy on my team. But when I think about having stars scattered across the whole league and baseball being better as a whole, I think there's no better place for an absolute superstar like that than the Washington Nationals organization. I mean, we've seen how well that team promotes having good players. Harper was a star the second he stepped onto the field. They've done things. Uh, Rendon was outstanding. Soto is currently outstanding. And they're just a fun team to be a part of, it seems like, when they're good. Do you, do you kind of agree with that as a fan? I do. I mean, because D.C. went without a baseball team for so long. And when they did get, finally get the Expos turned into the Nationals, it wasn't until 2012 that they were able to turn things around. So people forgot how important baseball in the nation's capital was. But from the get-go, as you said, Harper immediately like made baseball in D.C. fun again. And then Rendon and then acquiring Scherzer, you get this bona fide future Hall of Famer. And yeah, baseball is fun again because 
for the longest, NL East was everyone thinks is the Phillies, the Braves, the Mets, the Marlins had two little stints. But you just think about those teams. And then you have another team that all of a sudden just dominates the 2010s and it adds more parity to the division. And it's not fun when you see the same team win over and over and over again. I mean, I bet from a White Sox fan, besides 2005, you were upset that it was the same two teams running the Central, and you like having parity in said division. So, yeah, I agree with you. Like Nationals having superstars is good for the sport. It's good for me as a fan of the team. Also good for me as a writer because it's someone fun to write about. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, I do think a deal gets done. Uh, Soto said all the correct things. I mean, he even said it with Boris in his uh, press conference earlier. Uh he wants to stay as long as he knows the Nats are committed to winning. And Mike Rizzo, since taking over in 2009, has never shown any indication that he's never not been committed to winning. I mean, he won a he built a World Series ringer, a winner for crying out loud. So yeah, I think the two get a deal done, and I think it's going to be over 400. Not sure exactly where. I don't think it hits 500 like some people are estimating. I just think that's just absurd. If Mike Trout can hit it, I don't think anyone does. But I. 425, 430 range is my prediction. Very good. I hope to see it because, like you said, you're in that division, the NL East. It's got some historic teams on it. I mean, the Philadelphia Phillies, New York Mets, and Atlanta Braves are kind of three of the 10 pillar franchises in baseball. And to see the Nets competing with them for all those years after coming back from Montreal was outstanding. And, I, you know, as somebody who roots for like a second team in a city, it is like fun to see stuff like that. No, I agree. I mean, and then you got the White Sox, and I, I get where any team would be clamoring for Soto, but it's not like this White Sox on their own are starting for star talent. I mean, you got Tim Anderson for crying out loud. Before Trey Turner left, Tim Anderson was my favorite, like, non-nat, and now he's, like, even more up the list because we don't have a stud shortstop anymore. So I just love watching that guy. So, I mean, you guys have your own litter of superstars already. So, I mean, you're in a very good position. Yeah, and it, it's going to be fun times. Hopefully the Nationals can get this rebuild not or retool, whatever you want to call it, done quickly. Maybe there could be a, a late October matchup. That'd be kind of fun seeing D.C. and Chicago go at it. But in order to get baseball back at all, we need this lockout to end. Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association are meeting in Jupiter, Florida for the fourth day in a row today after going, what, 70-something days without speaking at all. I, I know the holidays were in there, but you know, the five or six holiday break is no excuse to go that long without it. But I think it seems like from things we've heard that things are maybe not headed in the right direction, but they're not going backwards. It's almost like they're playing chess. What are your thoughts on the lockout going on right now? And do you have any predictions on how this whole thing ends? Well, the second the lockout started, my initial prediction was the season will start in June. Now I'm not so sure because it's going even slower than I expected because I don't think anyone expected the second or third day of the lockout for the owners to straight up say, we're not meeting for a month and a half. Like that came out of nowhere. I don't think anyone expected the owners to just take that stance. At that point, the players, they had nothing. Like They had no power. They're like, well, we can't force them to meet with us. We just have to wait till they that said deadline they just gave us comes up. And since then, as you said, they're playing chess. Both sides are waiting for the other to blink. Unfortunately, no one's blinked or even coming close to blinking. I mean, what? They're, the players were asking for like $100 million or whatever it was for like the lower players in arbitration to make, and the owners offered $20 million. So that's 
80 million difference right now and that they're nowhere close to getting it done uh so i mean and i believe the deadline is monday before um once the games will be started being lost maybe 140 game season is best case scenario right now like what do you think i'm kind of in the same boat if they as some people have told us get it done by late next week which at this point is starting to look like a stretch but i mean i'm hopeful um 150 games 140 games i like what did you say 142 yeah uh 144 so i mean that's like a decent decent like best case scenario if you do lose games i mean like you still get a majority of the season it's not like we're getting a 60 game season again which i don't think anyone wants i think we want as many games as possible so yeah i'm with you i think uh if, even if they do get it done by Monday and play 162, that would be a miracle. But every mm-hmm. single day I wake up and I'm like, this is the day. Because it almost seems like as far apart as they are, one little discussion can lead to this thing like really getting traction and ending by the weekend. And we'll see if they take a break after. To- I'm sure they'll meet tomorrow because it's Friday. We'll see how the weekend goes. If I were them, I'd be meeting every single day to try and get this thing done. Because how could you want to push out any games when we have guys like Juan Soto and Tim Anderson and Luis Robert, all these guys that we like to argue over for months on end, just make them not play. And I've always said one thing that the NFL does really well is make the entire league a full calendar event. There is something to look forward to in every single month for the most diehard football fans. Baseball, they could have that and they're choosing not to. And you would think they'd want these guys on the field, but to grow the game, but I don't know. That's where I stand on the whole thing. I mean, I agree with you, and it's like the. It seems like they haven't learned their lesson from 1994, um, which is a problem because I mean, Graham, we I wasn't born yet. I was born in '95, so I didn't get to deal with the '94 strike. But for the baseball fans that have read about it or watched it, we all know '94 season got cut short. No World Series, no playoffs. Baseball hit a super decline. Steroids saved it. You can argue with me all you want. Steroids saved baseball. I'll die on that hill. and but they're not in that situation to do that right now. They don't have a saving grace. And as you said, they have all these superstars that if they weren't in the market baseball the way we believe baseball should be marketed, like up with the levels of the NFL, they could. And they're choosing not to. And then they're trying. The worst part is they're trying to play the victim when the players weren't the ones that said we won't wait a month and a half before we won't start talking. The players weren't the ones that said we're having a lockout. We're locked out. The players were willing to meet. I mean, granted, they're also the plane for part of the problems for it takes two sides to be so far apart but more than not i mean neither side has learned their lesson and it's biting everyone in the ass right now absolutely you or we've seen a couple different rule changes start to be at least talked about and confirmed to be happening once this lockout is officially lifted one of them is bringing the designated hitter rule to the national league it's been in the american league for about 40 years now as a person who covers and cheers for a national league team are you happy that the designated hitters come into your side of town i am but if you had asked me a year ago i would have said no for the longest i was anti-dh and i'm not really sure exactly what changed my mind i mean part of the reason i liked i liked it was i like small ball right i like watching bunt sacrifices steals and part of that is because we had trey turner Fonzo Soriano for a year. Like we have guys that just love stealing bases, guys who love the bunt for a hit. And I just find that fascinating. Like nothing's better than watching a dude just flash his wheels and be like, I'm faster than you. You're not gunning me out. And that stuff is cool. Suicide squeezes. Yes, please. Those are awesome. I love plays at the plate. But then, and also the Nats had pitchers that could hit. 
Sure, uh, Strasburg won a goal, uh, silver slugger, I believe. Scherzer could hit. Strasburg hit a homer the year we won the World Series. Like they had hitting pitchers. All those guys are hurt or gone. And now I'm watching guys hit point four with the bases loaded. I'm like, no, please get this out of here. Give me the DH. Just get it over with. Um, so I think that's pretty much what changed my uh, mind because you have guys like Madison Bumgarner who are mad about it and understandably so. But I also understand that the hitters are happy because it brings 30 to 32 new jobs for players, which is very good. Absolutely. I think – Or 15, yeah. You, you'll you definitely find it enjoyable, I think, because even though some teams can't seem to get the designated hitter position correctly, it takes a certain mental you know, ability to be able to be a DH. Uh, someone like Eloy Jimenez, who is historically mm-hmm. bad at playing left field, but he wants – to play left field because he mm. feels that when he's a DH, it takes him out of the game. So I definitely think there is something to that. It's not necessarily as easy of just plugging in a really good hitter to the DH because then they got to go sit on their butt for three innings until it's their next turn to bat. So it's definitely an interesting take. Um, I like seeing some pitchers bat. You had two uh, really good examples from the Nationals. When Lance Lynn and his self goes up there and kind of looks angry while he's hitting, that was always funny. But then when he grounds out to second base with a runner on second and third, two outs, it's like, okay, what are we doing here? So I'm with you on that. Another rule that they were talking about, and we kind of touched on it briefly before the show, they're going to – I don't know if they're going to, but Joey Gallo of the New York Yankees, I guess you call him, he's a free agent now um, – he is the proponent of banning the shift and the shift is obviously when people can move around different defensive players into what they think the hitter is more likely to do. And Joey Gallo said, how is it, am I supposed to hit doubles and triples if I got six outfielders out there? And there are so many different arguments and counter arguments to the rule. If it were up to you, would you ban the shift? I mean, the reason I'm saying no is just like, yeah, I hate the shift, but there's no way to get a, get rid of it. Like, what are you going to say? I'm requiring you to stay in the infield. Like, how is that fair? Like, you're playing to your strengths. You have scouting reports. You know where the guys are going to hit it. If you know where he's going to hit it and not allowed to stay in where he's going to hit, how is that fair, right? So there's no, like, good solution to banning the shift because it just makes sense. I just don't know why it took teams so long to start shifting. Um, it didn't take till like our generation of baseball, 90s and 2000s. Uh, and I get where Gallo's coming from, but there's something I would like to point out, and it happens every time I see the shift just bunt, just bunt, just bunt, just bunt. And I don't care if you if you want to say, well, that's not being your shift, you're giving up, you're giving into it. I don't care if you're giving into it, you're standing on first base and you're not out and you're not complaining, and we have a base runner and we can keep the inning going, just bunt the ball. Like, that's literally it is. The more you bunt, the less they're going to shift because then they're going to be like, oh, is he going to bunt? And then you have your spot. You like to hit open, and it opens up the offense for the rest of the team. Okay, and so for the longest time, they didn't have the shift, and finally managers and scouts and all that decided, hey, if we put the shortstop behind second base and the second baseman in shallow right field and the third baseman where the shortstop stands, and – Somebody who's a dead pull hitter that, you know, a, a good uh, Gavin Sheets from the White Sox, just random mm-hmm. person that popped in my head. He's a dead pull hitter. He likes to mash it uh, and pull it. Well, now they're going to have to adjust back. Hitters are going to have to start thinking, hey, 
if I want to be successful in the major leagues, I might have to start hitting against the shift. I might have to avoid being a dead bull hitter, spread out my arms a little bit and push the ball to left field. If I'm Gavin Cheech, or if I'm a dead bull right-handed hitter, push it out to right field. You know, there are so many different ways to beat the shift. And like you said about bunting, I, I kind of think like practicing hitting it where they ain't is like something that's possible, especially for some of these elite hitters. And I get the argument where it's hard to pull or oppo it against the shift when people are throwing the ball to specifically jam you to hit it towards the shift. Like if you're swinging, right, and you get jammed on a 98 slider, fastball, whatever, I mean, you're not being the shift. And that's not your fault. It's just what pitching has become today, right? 20 years ago, you didn't have the players throwing the disgusting stuff you guys are throwing. You don't have that. Liam Hendricks, nasty stuff like out of the knife. You don't have that Scherzer fastball, right? That with the upper movement and stuff like that. Um, and nowadays you do. So it's harder to shift when you see the ball coming down the middle. And next thing you know, it is just dropping like 20 feet in front of the plate. And I get that makes it harder to beat the shift. But as you said, you can practice it. And some people are better than others. Juan Soto is the best I've ever seen at hitting where people aren't. Hey, Mike Trout, like the best can do it. And as you said, Gavin Sheets, a very, very deadly dead ball hitter, is going to struggle more because it's something he's not used to. But as I said earlier, if they just start just bunting once or twice, it opens up the offense. And you have your big sluggers that hit home runs that think it's beneath them. Then don't complain when you strike out three times in a game. Absolutely. And very interesting conversation, though. Joey Gallo, he makes his points. We heard about – how home runs, you can argue that home runs are up because of the shift, because instead of mm -hmm. trying to beat the shift, they just try to hit it out of the ballpark, but that adds extra strikeouts. Maybe if the shift doesn't exist, Joey Gallo doesn't strike out 219 times because all he does is go up there and try and hit home runs. There are definitely arguments and counter arguments to both sides, but I'm kind of with you. I think, yeah, the shift sucks when Tim Anderson grounds into a double play because he hit it to – the shortstop standing behind second base. Uh, yeah, that's annoying. That would have been a base hit without the shift and two runs would have scored. But that's to me, just the other team using their brain on defense. Mm -hmm. Baseball is the only sport where defense controls the pace of the game. Like if you think about it, football, the offense start has the ball. They control the pace of the game and basketball, whoever's carrying the ball on offense, they control the game. Same thing with oh, hockey. Dude. So like, you know, baseball is just a different sport in that way. So even though it's like boring and stinks and it, for, another thing I'll say, it's fun when you see guys like beat it. If mm -hmm. Moncada's at the plate or Soto or anyone and they hit it where the hitters aren't on a shift, that's pretty cool. So, that, but like I said, the defensive strategy, it's kind of interesting. I agree. I mean, what are they supposed to do? Not use their scouting report that they spent all night working on? Oh, I have the scouting report, but now because Joey Gallo complained that he struck out 220 times, I'm not allowed to use it because the league implemented a new rule? No, that's not fair. You have the scouting report for a reason, and you play to your strengths. As you said, they're controlling the game. You have to find a way to get past that. And are they going to take away things from hitters that come from scouting reports? Like, okay, let's say – Juan Soto's coming to bat, right? And he's facing Lucas Giolito. And let's just say, for the sake of the story, Lucas Giolito starts with a fastball up and away 65% of the time. 
like you can't stop a hitter from knowing that or trying to, you know, mm-hmm. know, hey, I could probably swing at the first pitch against this guy because it's going to be a fastball up and away in the zone because the statistics say so. To me, it's like the same thing. You're punishing one team, one side of the thing as opposed to the other. And every sport just seems to be trying to cater to offense because they want people to watch more. And that's what banning the shift really kind of does. But I don't know. It's it's a it's an interesting conversation for sure. Agreed. I mean, and once hitters find a way to beat it, or if, even if you beat it two or three times in over like a week, right, they're going to start shifting less because they're like, all right, he can beat it. And then you're going to have your favorite spot of the offense open, right? So once they find a way, which they definitely will, because that's what baseball is, always evolving, they won't be complaining anymore. Absolutely. So I want to head back to the Washington Nationals just a little bit here before we move on. Um, the trade deadline was interesting for them last year. Obviously, Max Scherzer was sent away to the Los Angeles Dodgers and Trey Turner went as well. Were mm. you surprised to see as much of a fire sale as it kind of became? Even sending away Kyle Schwarber to the uh, Boston Red Sox, uh, John Lester went over to the St. Louis Cardinals and found some success. What did you think of the whole trade deadline last year? So I wrote an article in 2020 saying that the Nats started fired uh fire sale dead and they didn't and i was very surprised when they did it because i didn't think rizzo had it in him to blow up the roster for all every year i won't rebuild i won't rebuild i'm committed to winning i'm like all right this dude is just stubborn and the team is going to suffer from it but so so be it i was very happy that they rebuilt it was long overdue um 2020 showed it the players they couldn't repeat that strategy they won with the oldest roster in baseball and two years later that roster is even older and you cannot win with a bunch of guys in their mid-30s you just can't so i was very happy i wanted him to trade trade turner i didn't think they were going to do it like of everyone that was traded he was the one that surprised me the most because i was just like there's no way to have it in him he still has two years left on his contract at the time now he's one year left but they did it and they got some studs out of it Fan base is mad. They still will complain. Like, I'll write an article and I'll have a comment here or there. Be like, well, we wouldn't be in this situation if they didn't blow up the roster. I'm just like, no. It was well overdue. Oldest oldest roster, right? And then you got guys that the Nats were so far out of it. Kyle Schwarber hurting his knee, running down that base, ruined the season, and it happens. People are convinced that the Nats would have been fine. Their bullpen finished second to dead last in ERA. Finished second to last in fifth. Right, so you have the worst bullpen, which they just choose to always ignore. Your starting rotation, which has become your bread and butter, was hurt. Strasburg, since signing his big contract two years ago, has thrown six, 16 and two thirds innings. He's 2020, 2021, both seasons ended the season ending surgery. Patrick Corbin, who had a 3.25 ERA in 2019, had a finish either last or second to last last year in ERA with a five something. You're not going to win with stuff like that. So it was long overdue. Free up the money. Scherzer's contract is gone. Some of his deferrals were picked up by the Dodgers. So that helps out. You got younger. You got prospects that are very exciting. And now you have people, you have a different reason for fans to come out, right? So now we got guys like Caber Ruiz, Josiah Gray, Lane Thomas, younger guys that are giving Nats fans something to be excited about for the first time since they initially entered their contention window. And you can speak to this. You, I bet you personally loved watching when all your top prospects were getting called up. I bet you were like, 
oh, MLB Pipeline gave us the top six prospects in baseball. And now they're finally here. And I'm very excited. Like, that's how I'm going for right now. I'm having so much fun watching KB Ruiz just hit doubles and just like strike out less than he walks and stuff like that. And that's fans are mad, but like, it was so long overdue. That's amazing. I, I love to hear it. They do have some good prospects. And that was actually going to be the next thing that I brought up here for you. Is there one particular prospect? I mean, you can even name like two or three because the audience is interested in learning about other teams from, you know, the National League. We cover the Cubs here too. And I, you know, you're going to play the Nats a fair amount of time. Who are some prospects for on a national scope to keep an eye on? Who are you most excited about? So I'll give you the basics, like our most touted prospects. You got Cade Cavalli, who's our top pitching prospect, who, dude, he entered Oklahoma for college as a two way player. He didn't start pitching full time till college, right? So, and now he's a full time pitcher. He just transitioned. Dude throws, he tops out 101. He uh, finished first in the minors and strikeouts last year, started at high A, finished in triple A. Has to work on his control because you know how guys that, like Michael Kopech, for example, it took a while for him to hone in his heat and probably had a high walk rate to start. That's what Cabal is going through right now. Got Cole Henry, who has some of the best like secondary stuff out of any of our, the Nats pitchers. The only problem is he's dealt with injuries. Jackson Rutledge is another guy that throws a hundred. Who's very exciting. He just drafted Brady house. Who was projected to go in the top eight fell to 11. He has um, insane power, insane power. So those are like the basics. And then some of the guys I'm excited to look out for too, that are a while away. Uh, TJ TJ White, he's just a power uh, outfielder that we picked up in the draft. I believe it was the fifth-round pick last year. And he also just has some loud pop. Dalen Lilly, second-round pick by the Nats last year. He's an outfielder who um, he was twice named the Gatorade uh, Player of the Year for high school. So that's just someone to look forward to when you get like someone like that. Um, and if you like defense, there's this guy named Jackson Clough who – for the Arizona Fall League, he was named Arizona Fall League Defensive Player of the Year. So, I mean, that's pretty good when you go against the top guys like that. So, yeah. there's just a few off the top of my head. Very cool. It's going to be fun to see all these guys called up. And so, when you're working with prospects and you have one of the best players in baseball at 23 years old, Juan Soto is 23, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is so absurd. Yeah, it is absurd with how much he's accomplished. He comes in second for MVP, World Series champion. There, you know all-star there are just so many great things about him and he's barely there are some guys who don't make their mlb debut till they're 23 before becoming mm -hmm. stars so you got a lot to build around so i ask you you kind of alluded to it earlier in the show what's the rebuild window in your opinion mike rizzo said 2024 which also happens to be the last year of juan soto's um has of arbitration which makes sense right if you're going to convince soto to stay you have to be in contention by the time his contract wounds, ends up they got some glaring holes in the bullpen. Uh, their offense is good. They just need power guys because Josh Bell has one year left on his contract. Besides he and Soto, they don't have anyone proven that can drive and run, so they need a, one or two more like power guys. They have tons of guys that can get on base. Um, they finished top three in the National League last year in on-base percentage, which is great, but they need people to drive them in. Um, pitching looks bad now. Corbin and Strasburg are big question marks, but Josiah Gray from the Dodgers, Cavalli, How, uh, Cavalli, Jackson Rutledge, Cole Henry, another guy, Andre Lara. They have their pitching. They have an entire rotation in their bullpen, which is like four of their top ten prospects. 
already like a year or two away. So the rotation will be good as long as they can like live up to their um, potential. And then from there, the Nats have never been scared to save money. They just fill in where needed. I really do think as long as Cabert Ruiz, who was the main prospect from the Scherzer trade, lives up to what they believe he can be, then they will meet their 2024 window. How much did Zimmerman mean to you as a Nationals fan? More than I can put in the words. I was nine years old when the Nats came to uh, became a team. I was nine when Zimmerman made his debut. I remember watching him. And in 2006, Father's Day, first of Zimmerman's 11 walk-off homers, it was like a noon game. I was downstairs watching baseball. Because before the Nats became a team, didn't watch MLB baseball. Just didn't. Wasn't on in our house. Not till the Nats came. So I was so ecstatic. Yankees are coming to D.C. I can't go to the game, but I grew up in baseball, just playing baseball. So I knew Jeter and A-Rod and all those guys were so excited to watch them for the first time. Nats were terrible. They were supposed to lose. Zimmerman hits a walk-off homer to dead center to walk off the Yankees at Nats Park. Since then, I was like, let's go. He had, he finishes with 11 walk-off homers, which is third most time, most. Two behind Jim Tomei with the record. And Zimmerman was just there for everything. The first home run in uh, Nats World Series history. I want to say he has the first Nats playoff home run. He was there – Literally every milestone. He retires the all-time home run leader, the all-time hits leader, uh, two-time all-star, silver slugger, gold glove. If you never hurt his shoulder, he was going to be one of the best defensive third basemen in history. He finished with like a 50 or 60 defensive run saved at third. It was absurd. One year he had like 22 defensive runs saved in like his third season at the hot corner. Moving the first base the last five years, people forget how good he was defensively, especially for those that didn't watch the American League. And then you can make the argument, oh, he doesn't have gold gloves. Well, that's because he played the same position as someone by the name of David Wright. That it just happened. And Nolan Arenado. You're not going to beat those two for gold gloves as good as you are. They're just some of the best at their position. And that's not saying he wasn't. He was just he was there for everything, man. Like the home runs, the hits, the walks, the the catches, the plays, like they're going to build a statue. He's going to be the first Nationals number retired and well-deserved. He's named Mr. National for a reason. He's not going to go in the Hall of Fame, but he will never be forgotten by the franchise. That's awesome. I loved watching him play. So when they won the World Series in 2019, I was very, very, very excited about it. Somebody who else won the World Series with them, we touched on him a little bit, is Max Scherzer. And you said that you don't see the Nats really contending until 2024. That kind of leans into the end of Max Scherzer's contract. So because the Nats aren't necessarily competing for division titles right now, are you kind of rooting for him a little bit, or do you just hate the Mets enough to where you don't care? I will never root for a division rival. Like, as a baseball fan, I'll never root for a division rival. As a Max Scherzer fan, I hope, unless he's playing the Nats, I hope he only throws perfect games. I love that guy, and I'll never hate him. But, like, when he plays the Nats, I hope Juan Soto takes him deep every single time. Um, and then from, like, a writer's perspective, yeah, of course I hope Scherzer does well. And, um, and at some point, even as a baseball fan, you have to get tired of the LOL Mets meme and you want to see him do well for once. So if Scherzer – and if anyone's going to fix that dysfunctional clubhouse, it's going to be Max Scherzer. He goes in there and he doesn't let anyone mess around. He doesn't let anyone play games. And he just fixes issues. So if the Mets are ever going to 
get rid of that cloud of their head of dysfunction, it's going to be this guy. Absolutely. And if you think back of the three best pitchers in the last 20 years, it's probably in order Clayton Kershaw, Max Serger, Jacob DeGrom. Uh, you could really scramble them in any order. But having DeGrom, who probably is the best now in the MLB, with Scherzer is just an absolute amazing one-two punch, even for just a baseball fan. You might disagree with me. I think DeGrom's going to be there. Right now I have him fourth because Justin Verlander, just because of what he did over his career, not that he's retired. I just think it's those three and DeGrom's a clear fourth. And only because DeGrom started his career late. And, I mean, he's so much of his prime left. By the time he retires, if he continues with his trajectory, DeGrom's going to retire the best of those four. You know, I actually don't disagree with you at all. Verlander didn't even really kind of pop in my mind. I, I don't kind of dumb. He played against my team and destroyed him for all those years. Justin Verlander was amazing too. So you know what? I don't hate the argument one bit. I don't even slightly disagree. It was almost like an oversight. Verlander was, man, when he was with the Tigers, and then he kind of like fell off a little bit with the Tigers, but it was just clear that he was like checked out and didn't want to be there anymore. And then he right when he went, yeah, he was sick again with the Astros. And yeah, the Astros have that elephant in the room, but like that didn't really help the pitchers that much. Oh, so no. he was amazing. So that, that's really cool. And I'm excited to see Met, the uh, Scherzer and DeGrom just partner up. And it's hard to see a team coming out of a series where those two are pitching in the first two games if they make the postseason. So and that was one of the big stories going on in Major League Baseball across the offseason until the lockout. Are there any other ones that went on right before the lockout or are going on right now that interest you that you like to talk about? Like baseball storylines in general? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, there's a few. Um, for one, the Texas Rangers shelling out insane money for a team that is at the bottom of the division. You love to see it. You like to see teams that are bad. you like, all right, I'm tired of being bad. I'm ready to spend money. If Corey Seager stays healthy, if Marcus Semien continues at the trajectory, that middle infield is going to be disgusting. And that made me so excited to like pay attention to. It also helps out that our boy Robert Murray was the one that broke the Marcus Simeon uh, signing, so um, that's cool. Uh, and then they got like a really impressive farm system. I mean, it sucks that uh, Josh Young just got hurt, their uh, top offensive prospect, but you got Jack Leiter on the way. Oh, man, dude, that team's going to be fun to watch. Absolutely. Jack Leiter. I saw a picture – or not a picture. It was a video of him – throwing a bullpen, I think it was either yesterday or the day before, and, man, he just is fun to watch. I can't wait to see it. That's a great storyline. And you have some other teams there in D.C. Are you a fan of the other sports teams that hang out around there, or are you just a baseball guy through and through? I'm D.C. everything, um, for better or worse, meaning I do watch the Washington Commanders, unfortunately, because, I mean, I've gotten nothing but misery from them. But at least the Caps and the Nats have made up for it. But, yeah, no, I love sports, dude. I don't care, like, what it is. I watch the Wizards, even though they're in mediocrity for a lifetime. Love the Caps. Alex Ovechkin, probably my favorite DC athlete, not named Ryan Zerman, is that guy. And that's only because baseball is my favorite sport, even though Ovi is a clear better athlete. I just love Zerman so much for what he meant to me as a baseball fan. But like having to be able to watch Alexander Ovechkin since I was like eight is a – people never get to watch a player like that, right? So like – I mean, you were a Devils fan. That was probably how you felt with Martin Brodeur. Like, just being able to watch a guy like that every single night makes me so happy. Uh, yeah, Dan Schneider ruined the Washington Commanders, but I'm never going to give up on them. So, I mean, I mean, I still like to watch them play. 
I love hearing that. We have a hockey show on Wednesdays at the same time. With I have two co-hosts. Maybe we could have you on to talk about the Capitals because we give the Capitals so much love. Two of our three hosts, myself is one of the two, think that Ovi will break Gretzky's goal record within the next four to five years. You do you do believe so? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so because it's just one of those things. And like I'm, I'm a Devils fan, and I live in Chicago, so you know I've seen some good players across all the sports. But when the Caps won the Stanley Cup in 2018, I truly think that besides Flying Orr in the 70s, Backstrom and Ovechkin holding the cup together is one of the great moments in the history of the sport because of how long – it was legitimate true blood, sweat, and tears to get there over a span of 10 years. Watching Ovi hold the trophy and literally screaming like a madman and then literally a year later watching Ryan Zerman jump into Anthony Rendon's arms and start crying is two moments I'll never forget. And the best thing about it is those two teams are best friends, and the Nats were in attendance when the cap for the entire Caps playoff, like Stanley Cup. And then likewise, the Caps went all the, all the Nats games, and um, the Nats won the World Series on October 30, and the Caps were throwing their uh, Halloween party. And they had the game on TV, and there's a video that the second that um, Daniel Hudson struck out Michael Brantley to win the World Series of Alex Ovechkin just letting out one of his patented screams because the D.C. sports team won another championship, even though they had nothing to do with it. That's awesome. I, I love it all. Ovechkin's amazing. I hope he breaks – I hope he reaches 1,000 goals. Uh, that's a lot. Uh, he could get up to in the 900s. I do believe that if he stays healthy, scoring 20 to 30 a season after he drops 50 this year, we'll see what happens. But uh, would you have kept Washington football team as the name? Yes. Um, I, I People came around it. The second it was announced, I thought, one, I thought it was hilarious. I just, I was like, that's so funny. Like my buddies and I would always joke, who won the football game? The football team? No, like, like, no, like we just think that's so – it's so stupid. We thought it was awesome. So, yeah, I, I wanted that name the most. Like the fans won Red Wolves, which I thought was cool. But, like, nah, if I had a choice, it would have been the Washington football team. I just think it's different. Like I can't fathom a bunch of grown men complaining or grown adults in general complaining because they don't have a mascot. You don't have anything better to do than complain because your sports team, you don't have, like, a fictional thing to root for. Like that's what bothers you, not the fact that, like, we're just bad. Yeah, 100%. And I'm not like a big soccer guy. It's definitely like my fifth or sixth sport. I mean, I like it. I like any competition. I'll watch two people throw darts at a board if, you know, it's it's true competition. But I like that they have like, you know, Washington FC or Washington United. I can't remember what it is. Uh, DC United. It's something not called Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. DC United. And then the Atlanta FC. New York FC, like there, mm-hmm. I just think it's so cool. Like the football club, the football team, I'm I'm all for it. I think it's like yeah. an American thing to be anti-football team. I mean, I just don't get why everyone was so upset about it. I thought it was the best one by far. All my buddies agreed with me, but it is what it is. We're not the ones making decisions. And the thing with the name, no one's going to care what the name is as long as the team's good. If the Washington Commanders are good in the next two years, cool. If not, then everyone's going to be upset. But, like, don't be mad at the name. Just be bad at the trajectory of the team. Yeah. I think the biggest reason I was mad at them changing to the Commanders was because I loved the football team's jerseys. I yeah, thought they were, so, they were so cool. I bought a Chase Young jersey for uh, the Washington football team, Chase Young jersey, like the second I could. Um, I don't think I'm going to buy any Commanders gear just because – it's not the name. It's just like I still have so much Redskins gear that like I just can't keep upgrading. And at this point, they're just collector's items, so I'm just going to roll with it. 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, 20 years from now, if someone sees you wearing a football team, hey, remember the two years they were the football team? Mm -hmm. Like, that's going to be like a cool conversation starter at a party. So, um, Max, I can't thank you enough for joining our show and talking baseball with me for 45 minutes. Do you want to promote your brand, what you do, what you write? Uh, Tell everyone where they can find you and all that sort of good stuff. I mean, similar to Vinny, just try to write as much as possible up in that. So follow me on Twitter, Maximum Raymond, just to talk about DC sports, um, baseball in particular, how much we all hate Rob Manfred, you know, anything of that type of conversation. Uh, you can follow us if you want to learn more about Nationals Baseball Dish on Deck. And, uh, dude, thank you a lot for uh, having me on. Absolutely. And thank you for not being one of the big meanies about the Juan Soto article and responding to it with class and integrity and not wanting me dead. No, of course. I mean, also, like, you got to thank Kurt because a while ago, Kurt, uh, who people don't know, he's the head of the fan side baseball department. I, he told me, he was like, hey, if you ever get a chance when – if someone writes about your site from one of the articles, hop on it because linking back and forth between helps both sites. And the second I saw an opportunity to do it, I was like, I'm in there. So definitely thank Kurt. He was the one that gave me that idea, like, months ago. Absolutely. I love it. And, you know, keep up the good work. I'm a big fan. And for everybody watching at home, make sure you check out his stuff at District on Deck. And, of course, his personal Twitter, at Maximum Raymond. I'm at Vinny Parisi. And as always, thank you for listening.